the history of the nation of Israel begins with a man named Abraham in the Old Testament. Abraham has one son, and that one son, Isaac, has two sons, and Isaac has a special son, a chosen son named Jacob, and Jacob, he has about a dozen sons, and those dozen sons and their, uh, their mates, they go into Egypt to serve under Pharaoh for a while with their cousin Joseph. Once they go into Egypt, they spend about nearly, everybody debates it, I'm just going to say a round number, 500 years in Egypt. After they come out of Egypt into the Exodus, they go into the Promised Land, and it's within the Promised Land that God establishes a thing called the Commonwealth of Israel or the Commonwealth a Kingdom. I started to say the Commonwealth of Michigan. <laughs> well, we all know God didn't found Michigan, right? Because Michigan is not where God lives. Michigan is where God vacations. <laughs> One of the guys here in the church told me that a long time ago. And I've, you know, it's, I think it's, it's, it's so appropriate, isn't it? So, within that, within that Commonwealth kingdom, there was the first king, King Saul. Then there was another king who followed him, King David. And then King David had a son named Solomon, and Solomon became the king of Israel. While Solomon was king, Solomon turned away from the Lord, and he worshipped other gods. He worshipped false idols. And he got very carried away with this religion. Now, God judged him for that because the commonwealth of Israel as a nation was under a conditional covenant with God. If they lived up to the conditions of the covenant or the contract, then God blessed them. If they failed to live up to the, the, to the you know, the, uh, the standards of the contract, then God cursed them. And what you see throughout the Old Testament is blessing, cursing, blessing, cursing, blessing, cursing, going back and forth. Now, when Solomon turned away from the Lord, God said, okay, because you've sinned greatly against me, I'm going to take away the kingdom from you. Now, there were 12 tribes of Israel. I'm going to take away the, the kingdom from you, but I'm only going to leave you with one tribe over which to reign, and that's the tribe of Judah. And then there's the other kingdom will be divided, and it'll be the kingdom of Israel. And when you come into 1 Kings chapter number 17, we're quite a ways down the food chain from King Solomon and his son Rehoboam. We've come to the time in Israel's history where there's Israel is a separate nation from Judah. So let's call you guys the Israelites. If you're an Israelite, say, say amen. amen. We'll call you guys Judah. If you are a Judean, say amen. amen. So if you're Israelite, amen. if you're Judean, amen. all right. Now, most of the Israelites were really, really wicked. Amen. <laughs> in, the, in the history of Judah and Israel, Judah sometimes has good kings, sometimes has bad kings, but all the kings of Israel are bad. And when you come to 1 Kings 17, it's during the reign of a man named Ahab. And a name appears here in chapter 17 for the first time in your Bible, the name of a man named Elisha the Tishbite. And he comes on the scene with a message to King Ahab. Look at the reading. This is 1 Kings 17, verse number 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, 
before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. This is a separate message from the Lord to Elijah. Depart from here and turn eastward. Hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. Now this is a journey of probably about 60 odd miles going northwest. Northwest, because he's on the east side of the Jordan. He's going to cross the Jordan and go north. When he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives. I want you to pay attention to this, these words she says. As the Lord your God lives. As the Lord your God lives. I have nothing baked. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said. But first, make me a little cake and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, shall not run out, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Now let's make a short prayer together, and I'll give you this little sermon. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to stand before these, my friends and brothers and sisters. And I pray, Lord, that you'll minister to them. I don't know who needs what. And sometimes I do think that I know who needs what, but I'm not always right. But Lord, I know you are. You know all things, and I know that the Holy Spirit, through the ministry of your word, can work in people's hearts in the way they need. Now, Father, I pray most of all, I pray most of all, Father, that every person who is here and is not a real born-again Christian, that they'll come to know Christ as their Savior. And Lord, that you'll tear down any barrier that's keeping them from coming to you. Self-righteousness, unrighteousness, ignorance. I pray, Lord, you'd tear down these barriers and bring them to yourself. And I pray, Heavenly Father, for every Christian who is here, that our faith will be increased and that we can know you in a more powerful way. And I pray these things in Jesus' precious name.
Amen. I'm switching my phone to do not disturb, and I hope you'll do the same. Now, Elijah, the strain, the Easton's Bible Dictionary says here, this could be translated, Elijah the stranger comes. So here's King Ahab, he's the mighty potentate of Israel, and Elijah comes on the scene, and he's going to give him a message. He's a man of mystery. And what does he say to Ahab? There ain't going to be no rain until, my, until I've asked for it by my word. Now, I don't know if Elijah has the power here or God has the power because of James chapter 3, where it says that Elijah, a man of like passions as you and I, he prayed and it didn't rain for three years. So I think it looks to me like, based on the New Testament and the Old Testament, that God gave this special privilege to Elijah. It's, it's up to Elijah. Now, when you get a word from the Lord, it's pretty cool. We don't know anything about Elijah. He's doing his business, living his life, and then all of a sudden God comes and God speaks to him and says, I want you to go and deliver a message. And he has to take this message to not the guy next door, not to some dude down the street, but he has to take the message to the king of Israel. Now that's somewhat intimidating. It's intimidating to speak truth to power. And if you know Ahab, Ahab is a bloodthirsty, merciless man, and it's to him that Elijah must say, there's not going to be any rain until I say. Now, if you say that to a king, what do you think a king's likely going to do? What's his first response going to be? Have you ever had somebody say something to you that was so disrespectful and nonsensical that you wanted to slap them? Ahab, the, Ahab hears this message from Elijah. He receives it. And after a while, in my opinion, I could see Ahab sitting down and starting to boil about it. Who does he think he is? This guy from Nowhereville, from Nowhere Land, who has nothing, is nothing, will ever be anything. How dare he speak to me about anything? Who does he think he is? And so God, in his providential care and concern for his prophet, he tells Elijah, I want you to go hide out down by the creek until things cool down. And I've arranged for birds to come and feed you. Now, Elijah has gone in faith and spoken God's message, but now Elijah has to act on God's faith. Because, because God says, go down by the creek, by the brook Cherith, and wait there, and the bird's going to take care of you. Now, that seems a little far-fetched to me, doesn't it to you? The birds are going to feed you? Seems far-fetched. But this is a word that he's received from God. And so Elijah has to take God at his word and act. And my friends, I want to say this to you as well. You need to live by faith as well. You need to take God at his word and trust God and live a life that says, I am trusting in God. And if you trust in God, if you put your faith in God, you're not going to be sorry that you trusted the Lord. But you will be sorry if you don't put your trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Put your trust in the Lord. So Elijah, who is our example here today, he goes down to the brook and he waits around there. And the Bible says the birds do indeed come and feed him. But these are not just any kind of bird. The Bible oftentimes is a little bit generic, but here the Bible is very specific and says ravens. Not the Baltimore ravens. Ravens. The little little Bible dictionary books tell us that there are eight different kinds of ravens in Palestine. Eight different kinds of ravens. Now, I thought all that was superfluous, so I didn't try to figure out all the different breeds of raven. 
But one thing that did strike, that did strike, strike me as interesting was that ravens, they do not like their young until their young are completely covered in black feathers like they are. So little baby birds, have you guys ever seen a little baby bird in a nest? And what do they look like? Well, they're just, they're just, they're, they're naked as a jaybird, right? <laughs> There's no feathers on them. They're just little pink, kind of hideous looking creatures. And it's no wonder that God, that God, it's no wonder the ravens don't like them because they're ugly. But God in his providence has caused the ravens to actually care for and want to feed their little ugly babies because there is a worm that the raven, the babies have, that is excreted in their excrement. So when the little babies are making messes in the nest, there are little worms in their excrement that comes from the parents, I guess, when they feed them, that the parents really, really like. And so what keeps mom and dad coming around is they keep on eating the worms that are in the baby birds' Are you guys picking up what I'm putting down? Now, this is, this is an arrangement of providence. I think that is so fascinating that God does this. It tells us that God, He's got it all worked out. He has it all planned and everything is for a purpose and by His design. And you and I need to trust His purpose and His plan and His design. But these ravens also, they're not a bird that everybody could domesticate. Only one group of people in Palestine in the region would domesticate the raven or keep them as a pet. Guess who did that? Kings. To have a pet raven, to have a covey of ravens, was a thing that only the most prosperous and powerful people did because ravens are a little bit hard to get along with, I guess. So in this story, God tells Elijah, go and tell Ahab, it ain't going to rain till you say it's going to rain. Go down by the brook Cherith and hide out there, and the ravens are going to feed you. And the Bible says the ravens brought bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. Where do you think these ravens are picking up the bread and the meat? Now, this is just a supposition on my part, but I thought it was worth mentioning to you is that the king who gets the negative message from Elijah is the king who is supplying the food to the ravens to keep Elijah going. Now, in my mind, there's a story from church history I would like to bring out to you. Is that Miles Coverdale, when you translate the Bible into English in the mid-16th century, the archbishop of, of England, he said... That there was a reward of, I think it was 15 pounds for every English Bible, because it was against the law to have an English Bible. So Miles Coverdale, the Bishop of England, says there's a 15-pound reward for every Bible that's brought in. Well, it only costs about two pounds to make one of these Bibles. So Coverdale takes a wagon load of these Bibles, drives into town, gets, turns them in, gets the reward, and takes them back and prints a bunch more Bibles. 
it's an interesting thing how sometimes God uses an enemy to sustain his friends. God is quite a God. The Lord in whom we are trusting, he is quite a God. There is no God like him. There's none beside him. There's none that can compare unto him. And that's the God who's loved you with an everlasting love and who has sent his only begotten son into the world to reconcile sinners to himself. God is not what God was not under obligation to atone for your sins. But in his love, he has done that through Christ. So Elijah learns to trust in the Lord. He learns that God can sustain him by a brook and feed him from the birds. And this is a pretty good deal until one day the water runs out. And when the water runs out, probably the birds stop showing up. What's he going to do now? He's been trusting the Lord. The Lord's been meeting his need. Now what's he going to do? So the Lord says, I want you to go, go down to a particular kind of house, to a widow's house. Now, being taken care of by a widow is not really too exciting of an event for a few reasons. First of all, in that culture, in that time in history, unless a widow was married to a very wealthy man or had a lot of sons, then her lot in life wasn't too good. Now, in, in Israel... In the benevolence offering, Israel was commanded by God to take up a benevolence offering every third year. Every third year. And in that third year, there were three groups of people who could receive the benevolence offering. One was the Levites themselves because people didn't want to take care of the Levites because they're the priest. The second was orphans. And the third was widows. Now, so God sets up an economic plan to sustain widows because widows sometimes have a very difficult lot in life. If you read much of history, you'll read about those kind of things as well. So God says, I want you to go down to Zarephath, not down, to go up to Zarephath. Now, this trip to Zarephath is going to take Elijah out of Israel. He's going to go to the very northern part of the Israeli dominion, just north of the possession of Asher, right above it. He's going out of it to Zarephath. Now, Zarephath is a Gentile place. This lady who's going to take care of him is a Gentile lady. She's not a Jew. She's not under any kind of specific obligation. That's why in verse 12, she says, when he, when he comes to her and he says, give me some water, make me some bread, she says, well, your God, as sure as your God lives, I have nothing here. She says, your God is not my God. As soon as your God lives, I don't have anything to give to you. So now Elijah, in his life of serving the Lord, he's got to trust the Lord again. He has to move on to this new place where he meets up with a desperate widow. Now, this widow, here's this stranger. Think of the audacity here. There's some interesting things. He comes up to the city. He sees a, a widow. There must have been some way he could tell she's a widow. Probably she's adorned in the customary fashion of the day that said she's a widow, whatever that might be. She can tell he is a Jew because Jews had a particular way of dressing as well. They dressed slightly different than the, uh, 
than the, than the Gentiles, the Jews, as the people of God, all wore gray slacks, blue coats, and blue shirts. <laughs> the heathens did not. <laughs> there was something distinctive about his dress that she could say, this is a Jewish guy. And, she, and he says to her, now notice the Bible is interesting. It doesn't say, would you please? Ma'am, I hate to bother you. No, it's bring. Bring me water. Bring me water. You guys remember when you were a kid and your dad or mom would have that tone? They didn't, a lot of times the parents may say, would you please bring me this or please do this for me? But then there's that other tone that's a voice of command. Bring me water. Bring me some bread. He commands her. And she complains. She says, we don't have anything. We're going to eat and die. I want you to notice about her. She has resigned herself to death. She has given up hope. She has given up hope. We're going to eat and we're going to die. No hope. She's not thinking about tomorrow other than just death. She's given up hope. That may be you here today. Maybe you come to a place in your life and you've given up hope. This lady has come to a place where she's given up hope. She's out there. She's in the act of making her last meal. And who comes riding up? Elijah. And what does he say? He tells her to do something she knows she can't do. And he calls upon her to do something by faith in his word. His word, which is a word from the Lord. The widow says, your God is not my God. And now he says, make for me. Listen to what Elisha says to this hopeless woman in verse 13. Elijah, not Elisha. He says to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first make me a little cake and bring it to me. And after make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel. You're not going to run out of flour or oil. He says, trust in the word of the Lord. God has said. And she has to make a faith decision. Just like Elijah had to make a faith decision, didn't he? God said, go down there by the brook and the birds will take care of you. He goes by faith and what does God do? Does God dishonor his faith or honor his faith? It's not a trick question, class. Does God, does, does God honor his faith or dishonor it? Honors his faith. And this woman in her act of faith as well. She goes, she makes for Elijah, she makes for herself and her son, and guess what doesn't happen? She doesn't die. Because she goes on for many days, the Lord supplying the need, the Lord making up the gaps. Faith in the Lord. Faith in the one who can do anything. She has nothing. She's given up hope. But then God sends to her a messenger of hope. A prophet, a man of God has come to tell her if she will trust the Lord, her faith will provide for her. Now, this goes on in this chapter for just a little bit. Many days, and I don't know how many days this is. Fairly lengthy amount of time, I would think. But still, we don't see her making a confession. 
of faith. She makes no confession of faith. Now, remember, let me talk talk to you guys about this for a second. Miracles are nice, but miracles are not common. Miracles are nice, but miracles are not common. If they were common, they would cease to be what? Miracles. In John chapter 6, Miracles are nice, but they're not common. Miracles are nice, but they're not often enough either. They're not often enough. John chapter 6. Jesus does two incredible things. The first thing Jesus does is he walks on the water. Walks on the water. C.S. Lewis in his book on miracles, he says Jesus lives in four dimensions while we only live in three dimensions. And because he lives in four dimensions, when he comes to the water, he thinks nothing of walking on water because he lives in more dimensions than we do. Jesus walks on the water. He goes out to the ship to where his guys are rowing, and he gets in a boat with them. Then when they get to the other side, a lot of people hear that Jesus is over there, so a whole bunch of people show up. Now, you know what's funny about this? I just told you Jesus walked in waters, and you guys are just like, oh, big deal. We all do it. <laughs> we only do it from January through July. <laughs> Jesus walks on the water. Then when he gets to the other side, there's a lot of people who hear he's over there, so they get in boats and they make their way over there too. And there's a great multitude of people. And then Jesus takes a small lad's lunch and blesses the bread and multiplies it. And Jesus, from one person's lunch, feeds 5,000 dudes, not counting the men and women. He does two incredible miracles. Because when he, when he walked across the sea, the people said, how did he get over there ahead of all of us? How did this happen? Was disciples, I'm sure they're saying, Jesus walked on the water, and they're telling people. And then they get there, and Jesus takes one guy's lunch and makes, every, and get, makes it... I don't know the right, the right word. He, he makes it sufficient to meet the need. He expands it in a glorious way. He does these two miracles. And then Jesus tells them, I'm the only way you can be saved. And then he says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you cannot be saved. And he tells them, not as Moses gave your father's man in the wilderness. So he's saying it's not a tangible eating. It's a spiritual eating. He tells them, I'm the only way for you to have life. Just like you've eaten this bread that's given you earthly life, I'm the only one who can give you real everlasting life. And they, and they respond to this by saying, you have spoken a hard thing. And then the multitudes of people who've just had a front row seat to a fabulous miracle, you know what they do? They walk away. It's, it's a striking passage. It's John chapter 6, verse 66, if that number means anything to you. They walk away. They walk no more with Him. Because miracles are not common and they're not enough. They're not enough. This woman has seen a miracle. 
She just had a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. And she's seen it never run out. I mean, you think when she, when she was making, that, making, that, making those biscuits, you think she ever scraped all the flour out and thought, well, it's over now. There's no way we got enough for tomorrow. There's, and she, you know, if you're, she's pouring out the oil, she's probably trying to get every last drop. And then she puts it back in the cupboard and goes back at mealtime to prepare it again. And what is in there? Enough. I mean, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. It's a bona fide miracle, but it's not enough. Then you get to the last part of this chapter, verse 17. Now there's death. Death. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. She dies. The son dies. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? She connects the death of her son to some sin she's committed in her life. She says, What are you doing? I thought the good days were here, but now my son is dead. And Elijah says to her, verse 19, Give me your son. Then he took him up from her arms and carried him into the upper chamber where he lodged. And what is striking here about this story is Elijah doesn't know what's up either. He doesn't know what's up either. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you a little secret. I have to exercise my faith as often as you guys do. And I'm standing on faith ground just as often as you are. I don't have some kind of secret dispensation of extra faith. (laughs) My faith can be pretty low sometimes. In fact, I'll be honest with you and say sometimes my faith, if you had to measure it, I don't think you could measure it, it gets that low. Because I'm just a dude like everybody else. I'm just, I'm, just a, I'm just a regular Christian making my way through. Now, I know I, I, my job is knowing the Bible, so I know the Bible. And sometimes, even though I know the Bible, my faith gets kind of low. Elijah here has had this message from the Lord. Go tell the king. God's given him this special power. He's seen God do two miracles for him. And look what he says, verse 20. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even Have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? God says, he says, have you done this, Lord? What is going on here? What is going on here? I want to pause and mention this to you. Is that death is inevitable for all of us. It's inevitable for all of us. We hope we can put it off. We hope we can delay it. But it's coming. It's coming. And, you know, um, my friend Don Fortner, he, he would say this. He would say, I encourage you to think about death and to think about it often. 
Now, I've taken a lot of Don's advice. He's like my micro-apostle. But I've never taken that advice. <laughs> because death scares the eebie-jeebies out of me. Death. What's it going to be like to die? What's it going to feel like? What's the experience going to be like to die, to pass over from this world into the next? And then there's that big, what if it ain't real? What ifs? Death, that's the sobering thing. And that's what Don was talking about. Death will keep you sober, serious thinking, and will keep you humble. Death's coming. And my friends, I want you to, I want everybody to listen to me so carefully. Death is going to visit every one of us. None of us are getting out of here alive. If you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when you die, you're going to have to pay for your own sins. You're going to have to pay your own way. And what the Bible says about that is that paying for your own sins is going to take all of eternity. All of eternity. Isaiah 53, when it describes the death of Christ on the cross, it says that Jesus suffered and died on the cross and the righteous Lord, God the Father, looked at Christ and He saw His suffering on the cross for sin and God was satisfied. Satisfied. But for those persons who are cast away from His presence everlastingly, God never looks at them in their suffering for the sins they committed and is satisfied. That's why it just goes on and on and on. You say, well, is that a theological perspective? It is. It's also a linguistic perspective, too, because the Greek terms that describe everlasting torment are the same Greek words that describe everlasting life. Going on and on and on. Now, before death comes and knocks at your door, you need to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Are you ready to, are you ready to meet that? Have you put your faith in Christ? Have you called upon Christ to be your Savior? And I don't mean that you say, well, I'm a Christian because I grew up in a Christian home. My mom and dad are Christians. My grandpa's a Christian. My wife's a Christian. I mean, have you put your personal faith and trust in Christ? Have you come to see yourself as needing salvation? Have you come to see that you have no righteousness of your own? Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus died for sinners. And he says to sinners, come unto me. In the Revelation, the last chapter, it says, the Spirit and the bride say, come and let whoever is a thirst Come and drink of the water of life freely. Salvation is free to all who will believe. And you've got to believe before you die. If you're here today and you're as yet unsaved, and I'm beating you up about this one more time, that's God's mercy saying to you, I'll still have you. I'll still take you. Somebody may say, well, you don't know all the stuff I've been up to. I don't. God does. 
And he still says, I'll take you. You ever had a $100 bill? Anybody ever had a $100 bill? If you have a $100 bill, you like, I like those new crisp ones. You like the new crisp ones? They got that fun feel to them. And how much is a brand new $100 bill worth? Not a trick question. <laughs> let's, just, let's not get into the debates about the value of currency and the gold standard and all that dumb stuff. Let's just talk about, <laughs> in general, <laughs> 100 bucks is worth what? Brand new, crisp, right out of the uh, printing press at Dick Boss's house. I mean, <laughs> 100 bucks, right? What if you got a $100 bill that's been watered up, crinkled up, drugged through the mud, given to kindergartners for a week, <laughs> and then given back to you, how much is it worth? $100. Because your value to God is not changed by the garbage that you've been through. The stains that are on it do not make it less valuable to God. You are valuable to God because Jesus died for you. And He'll save you if you'll call upon Him. But you've got to do it before you die. If you don't do it before you die, John eleven twenty seven, He that liveth and believeth in Me shall never die because you get everlasting life. Are you ready to die? This boy dies. Now, allow me a little bit of liberty with the types here, okay? A little bit of liberty with the typology or the pictures. The prophet doesn't know what to do. He gets along with God and he says, Lord, I don't what's going on here. Then the Bible says he stretches himself upon the lad three times. And I don't know exactly what that means other than he laid down over the boy three times. Kind of in a full body hug, you might say, or maybe in an effort to. The Bible says he had no more breath in him. Maybe this was an, a primitive attempt at some kind of resuscitation trying to breathe into his mouth, trying to press on him, to press some air in and out. Three stretches. And then the Bible says he lives. Look at the reading. He prays, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. She has come to know that this God of Elijah is the God of truth. John Gill, F.B. Meyer, Keelan Delich, every commentary that I own, all say that this declaration of hers is salvific because she's believing that this God is the truth. Is that not what Jesus said? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me, the truth. Now here's the typology. Here is a son, this, this mother is saved, right? I'm hesitant to do this. We'll do it anyway. 
Here's a son who's a type of Christ. A son who in our story has no earthly father. It's a widow's son. There's no father around. He's a son with no bad record. Nothing negative is here about the son. There's no negatives listed here. Here is a son who dies. And here is a son who has three touches. Three outstretchings upon him. Sounds like three days and three nights in the New Testament. Threes. And then resurrection. And the resurrection of the son, when his mother sees the resurrected son, what does she confess? This is the God of truth. You see the typology there? Give me the liberty. The types are all through the Bible. The Bible is full of these little pictures of Jesus and his saving work. A resurrection saves. A resurrection saves. This is what we're called upon to believe, be reconciled to God, isn't it? If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that God hath raised him from the dead, then you shall be what? Saved. Saved. Let me give you this reading from the New Testament. And then we'll, we'll bring this to an end. Listen to Romans 10. Romans 10. This is verse number 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now I want to ask you, won't you you call upon him now? Won't you cry out to him? Won't you you let go of your self-righteousness? Won't you let go of what people will think about you? Your friends, your husbands, your wives. Your, won't you let go of all those things and just call upon him? Do you believe that he died for you? Do you believe that he will have you? Won't you call upon him? What's stopping you from calling upon Christ? What's stopping you? So I don't think I know enough. You're never going to know enough. I'm not good enough to be saved. You're never going to be good enough. That's why he came in the first place. I got to get my life kind of little, a little bit, little bit better. I got to get more faithful to church. I got to get this squared away and that squared away. And those are all just distractions, barriers keeping you from coming to Christ. Believe on him. Believe in the resurrected son. Malachi has this great reading. The Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in His wings. Are you tired of your sins? 
Are you tired of the filth? Are you tired of the guilt? Are you tired of the hopelessness? Are you tired of the peacelessness, my friend? You can find those things in Christ Jesus. But only if you call upon Him. Only if you entrust yourself to Him. Because that's what believing is. Entrusting yourself to Christ. Now let's pray together. (coughs) Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, Lord, I pray that everybody here who, I pray everybody, I want everybody here to be a Christian, to be born again. That's what I want. You sent Christ into the world because that's what you want. And I pray, Lord, that you would let these solemn warnings lay in the hearts of these men and women and boys and girls, lay heavy on their heart until it's what they want. Lord, I know that's how I got to be a Christian is because you changed my want. Father, I pray you'll change their want. Wrestle them into the kingdom, I pray. In Christ's holy and glorious name. Amen.